Cause we got the alternative energy Molecular free autonomy And welcome to the Radioactive Show Produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne And heard nationally on the Community Radio Network Hello, today's Radioactive Show has been produced On the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation In Fitzroy, in Nam, Melbourne I'd like to begin by paying my respects to elders, past, present and future. On today's show, we'll hear audio from a forum hosted by IPAN, the Independent Peaceful Australian Network, who have lodged a people's inquiry into Australia's foreign policy and particularly into the Australia-US alliance. Uh, The People's Inquiry is called Exploring the Case for a Peaceful and Independent Australia. The forum we'll hear begins with an introduction by facilitator Kelly Tranter, followed by a speech from Vince Scapatura, who's a politics and international relations professor at Macquarie University. Um, My name is Kelly Tranter. Uh, It's lovely to be uh, with you this evening and welcome to the second in a series of webinars on the US-Australian Alliance. I thank IPAN and specifically Annette Brownlee and Sam Brennan for the the invitation to facilitate this event and to chair this important inquiry. For too long, the Australian public has been sidelined from the debate about Australians' foreign policy, particularly in relation to the alliance with the United States, the first of its kind to give you a chance to have your say on the matter. It gives people a chance to elevate their voices uh, and the discussion above the current toxic political discourse to help our country reinvent itself independently of the United States and to take responsibility for and determine our foreign and defence policies. We must decide, in short, what's in Australia's national interests. Okay, so I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the uh, Macquarie University land on which I am present today, the Watamadagadul clan of the Darug Nation, whose cultures and customs have nurtured and continue to nurture this land since the dream time. I pay my respects to elders past, present and future and extend that respect to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people present here today. Okay, so if we're going to talk about the foundations um, of the Alliance, uh, of course, we have to discuss uh, the ANZUS uh, Treaty. So it's it's seen to be the cornerstone, uh, widely promoted as the cornerstone or bedrock of Australia's alliance uh, with the United States. Uh, it's depicted that way uh, by Australia's national security community across the bipartisan political spectrum. Um, the phrase cornerstone or keystone of Australia's defence foreign policy uh, with respect to the ANZUS Treaty appears at least 300 times in Hansard from the 1950s to 2010s, according to one research paper. Um, Scott Morrison recently called the ANZUS Treaty the single most important achievement of the Liberal Party ever while in government. Uh, so not only is it considered the important achievement in terms of Australia's defence policy, but uh, in terms of Australia's political history. Um, it's also considered a kind of uh, symbolic representation of the of the so-called shared values that Australia and the United States share, values such as freedom and democracy, the rule of law, human rights, and so on. Um, it's re- referred to as more than just an alliance, something that goes beyond interests and goes to values, a friendship and a commitment forged on the battlefield for over 100 years, and so on and so forth. Um, and ANZUS kind of 
you know, the idea is that ANZUS formalised this long-standing friendship. Uh, the idea of Australia and the US sharing mutual values was a much tougher sell during the Trump administration, but nonetheless, uh, the attempt was made. Uh, so in reality, um, I think it's important to point out that the ANZUS Treaty provides only a very weak commitment uh, to mutual defence. Um, the uh, ANZUS Treaty states that the parties will only consult together whenever there is a, a so-called threat to the peace. Um, it's not a guarantee. Uh, Australia wanted a NATO-like guarantee during the negotiation of ANZUS, but only got a weak commitment to consult. Uh, those limitations in the ANZUS Treaty uh, reflect the specific interests of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the senior advisory body for military matters in the United States. Uh, Australia pushed Australia's diplomats pushed and wanted access to Pentagon's global strategic planning uh, and how Australia might fit into that planning, you know, where and under what conditions Australian forces would be deployed uh, as part of America's kind of global war plans. Uh, but when the Joint Chiefs of Staff were told by uh, Dean Acheson, the Secretary of State at the time, this is in the early 1950s, uh, late 1940s, uh, they had, uh, quote, a sustained tantrum. Um, uh, the JCS wanted maximum Australian participation in any future war with minimal constraints uh, and limiting US reciprocal obligations to defend uh, Australia. So unlike US, other US alliances, uh, the ANZUS text refers to you know, attacks in the whole Pacific area, uh, which would include you know, attacks on US forces in South Korea and Japan or in Taiwan. Um, it, it means that there is a far greater likelihood and a greater obligation on the smaller ally Australia to militarily aid the United States. Uh, and of course, the history of alliance warfighting has thus been uh, Australia participating uh, largely in US-led wars to defend against threats or challenges to American global hegemony and not the other way around, you know, whether that be um, socialism, communism, independent nationalism, terrorism, or whatever. Um, so once again, in the present, uh, ANZUS is being utilised by the US to bring Australia into its great power conflict with China. Uh, which it views you know, as a threat to its uh, military dominance of the region or its hegemony. Uh, we learned last year, as part of the annual OSMIN consultations between Australia and the US, OSMIN are the Australia-US ministerial consultations that happen uh, every year as part of the kind of political infrastructure of ANZUS, um, that secret political military guidance or planning uh, is being developed to coordinate Australian and US forces for conflict with uh, China. Uh, presumably, the planning would address things like the role of US forces based in Australia, including long-range American bombers in any potential conflict with China, uh, or the specific contingencies that might bring about their deployment and how Australian forces might also be expected to participate. Of course, the planning is secret, so we, we don't know what is contained in it. Um, but, you know, the Australian US militaries are already very highly integrated with one another in terms of interoperability, equipment, doctrine, strategy. Uh, and this is solidified by very large and extensive wargaming exercises, uh, which I unfortunately don't have time to go into uh, today. Uh, but this additional, or this addition of kind of political military guidance to coordinate the deployment of troops between both countries adds kind of a further degree of what is uh, already very significant momentum and pressure for any uh, future Australian leader uh, to join the US in a conflict with China should some crisis that emerge. That, that momentum, that pressure, that integration makes it very difficult any future PM uh, to say uh, no should the US request Australian participation. Okay, so these days we don't hear as much about the alliance as the cornerstone of Australia's security. We hear every now and then, uh, but we hear more about the indispens how indispensable the alliance is for securing 
a rules-based regional and global order. I'm sure you've heard of this phrase if you've been paying attention on all to uh, foreign, uh, foreign affairs and foreign relations, particularly with respect to the US and China. Um, this rules-based regional or global order is fairly poorly defined and debated. Supposedly, it's based on the liberal values of freedom and openness and the rule of law and participation and adherence to international institutions like the UN and WTO and so on, but it's never really clearly defined. Um, in actual fact, uh, support for the so-called rules-based order is often used as a kind of more palatable way for describing support for you know, US strategic e economic interests, given that it is the US that has largely crafted the rules of the international system for its benefit uh, and whose frequent and fragrant violations, quite frankly, of the rules are never portrayed as a threat to those rules or the foundations of those rules. Uh, anyway, uh, China, on the other hand, um, which uh, I should say has been explicitly labeled by uh, the Trump administration and even the Biden administration as a kind of revisionist state, uh, is considered a major threat to the current rules-based international order. And Australia has more subtly expressed uh, the same viewpoint. I want to address this because um, it, it's kind of an important uh, element of uh, Australia's defense of its kind of antagonism towards uh, China and its further integration with the United States. Uh, the characterization of China as a threat to the global rules-based order, um, I believe is highly misleading. <clears throat> Even if one equates the rules-based order as defined by the United States, and as shown in the table on the slide there, um, China accepts many of the core rules and institutions of the international system. Uh, yes, it rejects some too, uh, but where it does reject elements of the current order, uh, the departure is not unlike any other great power, especially the United States and even Australia on occasion, uh, who rejects the international rules like UN arbitration over disputes with Timor-Leste or the invasion of Iraq or many others. Um, so yes, uh, you know, China is building military features on disputed islands in the South China Sea, and that is a rejection of, of current norms. Uh, but then the US violates similar norms, uh, actually more frequently, more expansively, and more egregiously throughout the entire world. Uh, and yet apparently it does so without demolishing or, or even posing a threat to the so-called free and open rules-based order. The point that I'm trying to make here is not that China doesn't pose challenges to some widely accepted international norms that Australians should and do value, uh, or that even we should respond in some way, but that these challenges shouldn't be exaggerated to depict China as some kind of hyper-revisionist power intent on replacing US hegemony, upending the current international order and, you know, opposing its authoritarian values around the world, um, which is certainly how the Trump administration depicted China and how the in incoming now Biden administration um, uh, has indicated it shares more than less of those same views. Um, China is most concerned uh, in its foreign policy with protecting its highly oppressive rule at home from external criticism. Um, it's uh, concerned about forging foreign relationships conducive to economic growth. Uh, it's not so concerned about exporting its model of authoritarianism abroad or reshaping the global order in its domestic authoritarian vision. China today is not like revolutionary China of the 1950s and 60s. Um, China has you know, very real and important stake in the current kind of global capitalist system of which it has derived many benefits and into which it is actually quite highly integrated, uh, a, a point that I'll discuss in a little bit more detail later on. 
Um, but yes, depicting China as this kind of revisionist power or a unique threat to the rules-based order is really a way for the US and Australia to kind of rationalize this uh, desire for, to see Washington uh, cling on to its position of, of hegemony. Okay, so I mentioned that we can't really discuss the costs and consequences of the alliance in the realm of military and defense without mentioning Pine Gap. Um, so Pine Gap is really the heart or strategic essence of the alliance. Uh, it would be hard to imagine the alliance surviving uh, without the existence of Pine, Pine Gap. It's much more important in a practical sense than the ANZUS Treaty. Um, Pine Gap is probably the most significant intelligence gathering facility outside of the United States. Um, many of you are probably already familiar with Pine Gap and what it does. I'm not going to spend too much time describing its functions, but basically it serves to intercept foreign military and civilian communications, provide intel on the nature and location of foreign defense systems, track conventional nuclear missile launches, uh, all of that which is fed back into the US coordinated globe spanning Five Eyes intelligence network, uh, as well as the US military for direct application on the battlefield, uh, including controversially in drone assassinations. Uh, the argument by Australia's national security establishment is that Australia couldn't hope to independently defend ourselves without the intelligence provided by Pine Gap. In fact, the late Professor Desmond Ball, the very influential and authoritative expert on Pine Gap, uh, argued in the, the years before his death in the mid 2000s, uh, that Pine Gap gives Australia everything and nothing. Uh, that is, it provides incredible amounts of intelligence that are useful mainly for US global military operations or Australian participation in coalition wars, but not particularly useful for our own defense needs and our own interests. Uh, the pivotal role that Pine Gap plays in providing actionable battlefield military intelligence for US forces means that, you know, there is no war the US can be involved in, in the Indo-Pacific or the Middle East, uh, without Australia's automatic participation through Pine Gap. Uh, and that makes, additionally, Australia a target of US adversaries, uh, and particularly a target for a nuclear, you know, ICBM. Um, so uh, look, there's lots more about Pine Gap that we could, that we could say, but uh, there's no, no time to go into the details. I'll put a link there to the Nautilus Institute's Pine Gap project, which is a fantastic resource in case you're interested to learn more about uh, the importance of that um, facility. Uh, the only additional point I wanna raise um, uh, this evening about Pine Gap is, is kind of to bring your attention to its kind of changing purpose uh, once again. As during the war on terror, when Pine Gap was used to prioritize US military action in the Middle East, uh, such as drone assassinations. Today, the Five Eyes Intelligence Network of, of which Pine Gap is a, you know, a key node is being repurposed to fulfill America's great power competition with China. Uh, so according to a recent investigation by Bloomberg with a dozen former and current Five Eyes Intelligence officials, uh, this new role of the Five Eyes Intelligence Network means that intelligence collected around the world will always have a Chinese angle, will always look for Chinese threats just as we once saw events in Angola through the prism of the Soviet Union. In that respect, it is a kind of return to the Cold War. Um, and so as with ANZUS, as with the new focus on the rules-based order, as with increasing defense integration between Australia and the US, Pine Gap and the Five Eyes Alliance being kind of repurposed to suit primarily American great power interests. You're listening to The Radioactive Show. And we're hearing a speech by Vince Scapatura, Politics and International Relations Professor at Macquarie University. He's speaking at a forum held by IPAN, the Independent Peaceful Australia Network, who are holding an inquiry into Australia's foreign policy and particularly 
the close military relationship between Australia and the United States? So um, just a, a few points about the supposed China threat before wrapping up, because as I mentioned before, if we're going to understand the contemporary costs and consequences of the alliance, we really need to understand the primary role of China in American strategic thinking. Um, so the new Biden administration has made it clear that it intends to largely continue Trump's more uh, assertive posture towards China, both militarily and economically, uh, although with less crude rhetoric and a greater effort and finesse in mobilizing US allies. So militarily, the Biden administration is effectively resurrecting the pivot to Asia that was initiated by Obama, but incorporating kind of new Pentagon warfighting strategies developed during the Trump administration. Uh, so in particular, the Pentagon plans to distribute US forces uh, more widely, more heavily across the Indo-Pacific, uh, with a new role for the Army and for the Marines operating within and around what's referred to as the first island chain uh, surrounding China, um, armed with kind of more mobile, long-range precision fires. Uh, precision fires that had been prohibited by treaty until the Trump administration withdrew from that particular arms control agreement. Um, ostensibly, this new or increasing military encirclement of China is required to neutralize you know, China's short and medium range missile advantages in China's near seas, um, and thereby prevent what's referred to as a fait accompli, uh, which basically means the concern is that China may initiate a kind of rapid military attack on Taiwan and then dig in before the US can move in sufficient forces to repel the attack. That's, that's the kind of justification. Um, when the head of Indo-Pacific Command, uh, Admiral Phil Davidson, presented his $27 billion Pacific Deterrence Initiative uh, earlier this month uh, to Congress as a, as a budget request to beef up America's military presence around China in the form that I just described, uh, he raised the alarm that China may attempt to invade Taiwan in the next six years. Uh, this kind of statement... Um, uh, is pure threat inflation to justify further militarization of the Indo-Pacific um, in order to maintain US primacy or, or military dominance. China is not on the verge of invading Taiwan. Um, China's preference is to deter independence um, rather than compel unification by force. Um, that is not to say that there are not legitimate concerns about China's use of coercion of political warfare to try and pressure Taiwan, probably to negotiate a, a reunification deal on Beijing's terms sometime in the future. Uh, but that's fundamentally different from concerns about an all-out invasion, which remain an incredibly costly proposition for China and would perhaps do irreversible damage to the um, CCP's, China's Communist Party's, you know, reputation and legitimacy, especially if it were to fail. Um, you know, Xi Jinping is perhaps less risk-averse than other recent Chinese leaders, but he's not about to embark on an irrational, you know, military invasion of Taiwan. Um, and, and similarly, with China's kind of regional military strategy more broadly, uh, it's not about kicking the US out of the Indo-Pacific. Uh, it's about responding to decades of weakness when the US could project force right up to China's shores militarily and, and dominate in China's near seas. Uh, China's military strategy is about responding to US intervention, not denying the US military access to the entire region, which it doesn't have the capacity to in any case. Um, you know, Washington's kind of choosing to depict China's attempt to balance against the US and its near shores as a threat to the entire regional balance and US national security interests in order to rationalize its own kind of desire to maintain primacy. Okay, so uh, last slide, I just want to finish up on um, the other so-called threat from China, which is the economic threat. Um, uh, once again here, the idea that, uh, you know, China is uh, posing a, a threat to, you know, Australia, to the region and to the US global economic supremacy is, you know, is, is uh, vastly exaggerated. Uh, 
uh, we're experiencing at the moment current trade restrictions um, over the past year. Um, but those trade restrictions, in fact, demonstrate the limitations of China's economic coercion. Uh, despite restrictions on you know, barley and beef and wine and timber and coal um, uh, imposed by China. And we can talk about the reasons why that is, um, perhaps if you're interested in the Q&A. Um, Australia's dollar, overall dollar value exports to China are actually booming. Uh, and this is largely a result of increases in the value of iron ore exports to China, which have um, been conspicuously left off the trade restriction list. Um, Australia recorded actually its second highest ever level of goods exported to China in 2020, 148 billion, which is a few billion less than 2019, but 10% more than 2018, which was the third biggest year. The reality uh, of what's happening here is that China has no realistic alternative when it comes to iron ore, which is by far the largest share of value in Australia's exports in China. And so while, you know, while it's not negligible, um, China's economic you know, power, uh, there's, there's a lot of exaggeration about China's capacity to engage in kind of economic coercion of Australia, particularly in order to extract political gains. Um, in fact, it's had the opposite effect, as, as we've seen. Business has largely fallen into line with the government uh, and kind of nationalist anti-China rhetoric, you know, dominates, continues to dominate the public discourse. Australia is not changing tack at all. Um, Okay, so uh, oh, the last that, that picture that I've got up on the on the slide there, um, just just to demonstrate a, a a kind of comparison with the United States. I mean, no one talks about the economic leverage held by the United States over Australia. Uh, China's economic leverage pales in comparison to the United States. Uh, America's cumulative cumulative investment stake in Australia is ten times as large as China's, uh, and in fact, the majority of Australia's biggest companies are owned by U.S. investors and shareholders. Uh, that graph on there is taken uh, from some research done by uh, Professor Clinton Fernandez. Um, China's capacity, you know, to use its economic coercion to extend its political and strategic influence in the region is also frequently exaggerated. Um, you know, it's claimed, for example, that China poses a threat to the sovereignty of nations uh, by engaging in what's called debt trap diplomacy in snarling countries with loans they can't repay. And then when they default, China goes in and seizes certain strategic assets like ports for use uh, by the Chinese Navy. Um, this is just pure fabrication. Um, several studies have demonstrated that this whole debt trap diplomacy concept doesn't exist. Uh, there's one most recently published by Chatham House, which I'll provide a link to on the slide there. Uh, there is no grand geostrategic objective driving China's Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, it's significantly economic drivers that underpin China's initiative, created by China's kind of serious overcapacity problems at home. Um, you know, the, the, the anticipated decision by the Morrison government um, to ban Victoria's uh, BRI agreement um, or memorandum of understanding with China um, outright um, uh, because of, you know, security or geostrategic concerns uh, really makes no sense, uh, except in the context of fear-mongering on domestic political purposes. Um, if you're interested more in reading about this myth about BRI and, and, um, and debt trap diplomacy and China's kind of geostrategic ambitions through economic coercion, you can you know, uh, follow that link on the slide. Uh, okay, so I wanted to talk a little bit more about um, the supposed myth of, uh, just, just to wrap up in a minute or so, because uh, I know I'm over time here. Um, uh, just quickly, the, the biggest myth of all, which is that China is on the verge of replacing the US as the world's largest and most powerful economy. Uh, this, of course, fuels fears about concerns, you know, of China translating its economic power into strategic power and political influence. Um, but the truth is that while China is certainly a powerful 
global economic player, it just doesn't have the same structural economic power at present necessary to challenge US primacy. And it faces significant obstacles ahead in the future. Um, over the past you know, 30 years or so of neoliberal globalization, particularly since China's accession to the World Trade Organization, Chinese impressive economic growth through foreign direct investment has had stunning impacts, positive impacts, but it's come at the expense of uh, an incredible level of ownership by US and other Western corporations. Uh, something like 80% of the most dynamic and technologically advanced sectors of China's exports are dominated by joint ventures and, in fact, mostly wholly owned foreign subsidiaries. Um, so even in the domestic market, there are several key sectors dominated by uh, foreign corporations. And I've got a couple of graphs here on the next slide, which you can um, have a look at in more, more detail, if you like, describing that, that process or that fact. Um, but yes, uh, China's integration um, into uh, you know, global financial markets uh, has actually increased over the past year, even despite the trade restrictions imposed by the Trump administration. Um, uh, companies like PayPal, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, American Express, BlackRock, and other big financial companies have all increased their access over the past year in, in, in China's uh, stock and bonds. Uh, foreign ownership currently sits at 837 billion which is an eightfold increase since 2014. Um, the point that I'm trying to make here is that, you know, this kind of level of penetration and dependence on a foreign, especially US capital is not indicative of a rising, you know, economic hegemon. Um, while China is, and, 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 you know, the Trump administration's attempts to cripple China's high tech sector with bans on semiconductors and the like demonstrate, you know, how the US still maintains structural economic power and the vulnerabilities inherent in China's attempt to you know, develop under a kind of US-led neoliberal globalization. Um, so China is relatively geopolitically independent, that's from the US, that's certainly the case, but it's still very highly economically dependent and highly integrated into kind of US global capitalism. Um, that doesn't mean it won't be able to break free of that dependence, uh, perhaps, and become kind of self-reliant in key technologies in the future. It's clearly trying to do this, um, as well as, you know, overcome serious domestic economic problems like a shrinking workforce and aging population. But whether it can do so or not, you know, remains to be seen. We're certainly not there yet and the indicators aren't particularly positive. You've been listening to The Radioactive Show and that was Vince Scapatura speaking at the IPAN forum about Australia and US defence policy. As you will have heard, IPAN have lodged an inquiry into Australia's foreign policy, a people's inquiry, and they're calling out for submissions. To find out more about it, check out ipan.org.au forward slash the IPAN inquiry. Today's radioactive show has been produced in NAM and can be heard nationally on the Community Radio Network. Thanks to the ACE Collective of Friends of the Earth for their support for our show. We podcast our shows and you can find them at 3cr.org.au forward slash radioactive. To contact the show, you can find us on Facebook. I'm Emma Crunch and music on today's show is by the Black Vat Trio.